What's up, guys? I'm Jared Lopes, and you're listening to the Dad Tired Podcast, where I'm helping everyday families learn how to follow Jesus in everyday life. What's up, guys? Thanks for checking out the Dad Tired Podcast. It's good to be with you. If you're stumbling upon this podcast for the first time, welcome. You can find out more about what we do by going to dadtired.com. When you're there, click the community tab that will link you over to a closed group on Facebook where we've got thousands of guys from around the world who are taking their faith, their family, and their marriage very seriously. You can also find on there a tab that says devotional. It's a brand new devotional I just released for guys called Stop Behaving. It's a 28-day devotional that you can go with uh, go through with some of your friends. Uh, and the, the premise of the book is that God is not trying to change behavior. He is trying to change your heart. And if our hearts change, our behavior will change as a result. Today on the podcast, I've got a super exciting guest. As always, his name is John Mark Comer. He's actually a pastor here in Portland, Oregon. If you live in Portland, you know John Mark Comer and what how God is using him and the church and churches uh, that he's led and is currently leading. And uh, the guy is just uh, a phenomenal teacher. Um, he's one of my favorite favorite teachers, definitely my favorite teacher in Portland and in the area. I listen to him constantly and uh, he geeks out on theology, but says it in a way that makes sense to us. And so uh, when you listen to him, you're going to learn a lot, uh, some really heavy like theological truths. Um, but it's also going to be in language that like just makes sense for us in 2017. So he's just a he's a very gifted teacher. There there's um, thousands of young people within Portland who listen to his teaching, sit under his teaching. Um, so anyway, I'll let him kind of introduce himself. But uh, this is a great episode. I'm excited for you to listen to my interview with John Mark Homer. So without further ado, here he is. All right, John Mark, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. I just gave you a short introduction, but in your own words, tell us who you are and what you're up to these days. Yeah, my name is uh, John Mark. I live in Portland, Oregon. I actually live right downtown. I'm a father of uh, three, 11, and then two eight-year-olds, two boys and a girl, raising my family right in the city, which is a ton of fun. And uh, we ride our bikes everywhere. I don't have a car, kind of doing that whole urban family thing, which we love. And I lead a church by the name of Bridgetown Church right in the west end of downtown. And we have a gathering in the kind of inner east side of the city. And I also write books about the Bible and the way of Jesus. And that's kind of me. My, I guess my like life question, is, if I want to articulate it, is to just work out what does it look like to follow Jesus, or I love the language of apprentice under Jesus, but specifically in the soil of the kind of urban or metropolitan, secular, progressive, post-Christian world and cultural moment, which I know is not all of America and it's not all of the world, but it's where I live. And um, it's Portland and it's New York and it's San Francisco and more and more because of the internet, it's Austin and it's Atlanta and it's Pittsburgh and it's you know Raleigh and it's spreading more and more all through the Western world, those that are more progressive, the urban centers, as well as areas that are thought to be more conservative, but people don't realize there's a subtle shift or not so subtle shift going on right now underneath our feet. And so I just, I think my driving question is, how, how does the church in America not go the way of, say, Germany or France or the Netherlands 
where it's all but gone. And that's not to disparage our brothers and sisters who follow Jesus in those countries, but the church is anything but thriving. And I like Portland because similar to LA or New York, it's a good kind of 20 or 30 years ahead of kind of the Bible Belt and Middle America and its secularization, but it's still 20 or 30 years behind, say, England or Europe and its secularization. So it's a good like moment just to be here and be working this out. And we just want to try to figure out what are ways to follow Jesus, to do church, to do the gospel, to do all discipleship in this kind of corrosive soil that tends to be really hard on the church and on just spiritual life in general. So, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm giving my life to. And that's what my family is about, trying to figure out how to raise kids in that kind of an environment and who love and follow Jesus. And, you know, that's it. Yeah, man. What's a lot of the listeners will uh, they they've actually read your book. I even had one listener uh, who wrote in and said, "Hey, can you have John Mark Comer on your podcast?" And I think I just confirmed you uh, to be on the show, which was really cool. But that's it, one listener. That's all I yeah. got. But hey, I'll take I'll take well, whoever well, we you are. Props we, to you. Yeah. Well, we we had one listener specifically request you. You know, so I'm sure there are more. You don't have to explain yourself. I'm not offended. I just I'll take the one. I'll take it. Well, uh, but but what they don't know, you and I live uh, really in the same area. You live in Portland. I live in the yep. suburbs of Portland. And uh, so to give kind of context to that introduction, uh, you, you've the way that God has been able to use you and uh, the body that you have, uh, you're leading is, is just really, really cool. So as an objective kind of perspective on what you feel God is calling to calling you to do. It's cool just to see that from afar and see how God's using you and, and the church to really put his fingerprints of the kingdom all over Portland. You can't go uh, two or three people who haven't heard about uh, how God is using you and your church there. So, uh, and, and one really cool Very way lovely. is th- through the... Um, through foster, we're foster parents, and so we hear a lot about... Oh, um, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are just doing such cool stuff, man. So, uh, yeah, a, a, again, as an objective perspective, you're kind of leaning into what you feel God's called you to, and I can see how God's using you in that, which is awesome. Uh, we'll dive into oh, it. Your, beautiful, man. It's really humbling. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. So you, you just wrote a new book called God Has a Name, which I've had a chance to read, and uh, uh it's funny because I just wrote a book as well, and I'm not a huge reader. It's hard for me to like read all the way through a book. I, I think I have ADD, so I'll just like pick up a book and then I set it down once I feel like I've got the gist. But I literally, right. and I'm not just saying this, haven't been able to set your book down. Like uh, it's really just just the way you write is is incredibly easy to follow, and uh, and then the content is really good. But in your book, God has a name. You talk about. Um, uh, what we be- you said that the most important thing about us is what we believe about God, essentially our theology. And for many guys, like um, theology is kind of low on the, the totem pole or list of, of stuff that they're thinking about. They're thinking about their job, their wife, their kids, right. uh, their favorite f- sports team or whatever. And, and theology may or may not make the list. And if it does, it's way down at the bottom. But you say um, that what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Can you explain that a little bit? Why is it the most important thing about us? Yeah. And when I say what we believe about God, I don't mean kind of abstract concept, you know, your take on this, you know, bizarre theological debate around the interpretation of some obscure text. I don't mean that. 
I mean, who you believe God to be, what you think God is like, what you think his character is like, what you think his personality is like, what you think he does or does not do in the world, what he is down with and not down with, what his definition of good and evil, right and wrong, the best way to be human that we call the way of Jesus is versus all the other ways to be human. That's what I mean when I say what you believe about God. Um, I, I have this, I hate email, so I have this little quirk where I only do email once a week. So I sit down every Tuesday morning and I open my inbox. I dread it all week long and I start at the bottom and I literally go to zero and then I close it and say, you know, thank you, Jesus, and don't touch it for another week most of the time. But I got this great email yesterday from this guy who's just, you know, recently started following Jesus and kind of rediscovering um, you know, discipleship. And it's just a beautiful email. And he had this one, my favorite line was, he said, I used to think that God was an idea to be changed. And now I realize he is a person I'm in relationship who changes me. Mm-hmm. And, and man, that just, I just love how he articulated his experience of following Jesus. And I think, you know, especially for millennials, I'm the, I'm 37. So I'm, depending on who you read, I'm the first year of millennials. And I think for my generation in particular, it's really easy to think of God as an idea and as a, like a kind of open to interpretation idea that we don't have to define according to Jesus or according to the Bible, but we, you know, get to define kind of however we want or whatever fits with our socioeconomic or political or moral or religious vision of the world, which obviously is very different depending on who you are and where you come from. And, and so when I say what you believe about God is, you know, if, if what comes to mind when you think about God is if you think God of God as a, just I'm thinking about the events of last week in Virginia. If you think of God as this angry, hateful, bigoted, you know, wrathful, violent, you know, being, then that is going to shape you into that kind of a person who is full of hate and bigotry and anger and violence. On the flip side, that's not really the world that I live in. Um, in a you know the urban context of one of the most liberal cities in America, if you think of God as this kind of LGBTQ affirming, progressive, bohemian kind of upper middle class, but we act like we don't actually have money, you know, kind of smart, sophisticated, tolerance is the top virtue. And I don't even say this like to mock. This is my neighborhood. This, these are my friends. You know, um, this is the culture that that I live in. If that's how you think of God, then the odds are it's going to shape you into that kind of a, you know, we will not tolerate intolerance, everything's good as long as it doesn't, you know, it's going to shape you. And so what you think about God isn't just this abstract concept thing to nerd out on in a Bible class if you're into theology. It will shape you for better or for worse into a very specific kind of person. And and my running belief, just based on following Jesus, is that the most important thing that we get out of life and that God gets out of life and that my children get out of my life, my wife gets out of my life, and my church gets out of my life, is the person that I become in discipleship to Jesus. I think that what I do matters a lot, writing books, teaching the Bible, church, I think that matters. But I think the thing that matters the most is who I become. And I think the main thing that I get out of my life and God gets out of my life isn't a book or a sermon or a podcast. It is my character. And my character will directly mimic and mirror who I think God is and isn't, for better or for worse. And so that's why what we think about God matters. Yeah, that's huge. And you you talk about in the book how a lot of uh, our the way that we view God ends up looking a lot like us. And there's a, there's kind of yes. a sense of idolatry. Like God likes what I like. He, he doesn't like what I don't. Like. Yes. He, he hates he all the people I hate. He loves all the people I love. 
Yeah, you right. voted for the person I voted for. Yeah, there's that classic line, and nobody knows exactly who said it first, but in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. That's you know, exactly nobody right. knows exactly who's, but there's just such a human bent in all of us to define God in line with our own bias and opinion and culture. But then we end up with a God who just isn't even real. He's a figment of our imagination, or half of him is, you know, right, but we think, you know, we're so off and how we think, and then we wonder why this God of our imagination feels distant and dead and lifeless and, you know. Was it hard for you to write the book? I mean, and you kind of give it in the preface in the sense that uh, you, you make the challenge like what we think about God um, really is wrong, most likely. And, and in some ways you're trying to create, correct that, that thinking that God isn't just who we want him to be, but he's an actual person. He has a name. Uh, he has his own yeah. characteristics. He does things yeah. by his own set of rules. Uh, and so to try to kind of correct uh, a lot of bad thinking, was that, was that a difficult challenge? Just like internally? Yeah, I mean, I think the difficulty for me, so I'm interested, I grew up in kind of a more conservative, soft fundamentalist church culture, great family of origin, but very conservative. And now I live in this hyper progressive, urban, you know, upper middle class, educated kind of uh, very liberal culture, irreligious culture, secular and pluralistic. And so I just, I have both in my mind. And I think, you know, when I look across the topography of America, our country is so polarized between the right and the left, not just at a political level, at a moral level, at a social level, at a um, religious level. And I, I deeply believe that when it comes to the church, both the right and the left are missing it. And that's, that's a very broad, sweeping, generic statement. Um, but I think there are ways in which the conservative, evangelical, or fundamentalist stream of the church is just radically missing some of the key tenets of Jesus' teaching. And then there are ways where the kind of more millennial, progressive, whatever you want to call it, liberal arm of the church is radically missing it as well. And I think the way of Jesus is a third way. I don't think Jesus would be a Republican or a Democrat. Um, and I don't think he, he would identify with either, you know, religious camp. I think he would make both sides angry and both sides would find him beyond compelling. I think you'd like come to a, a Jesus rally in 2017 and there'd be all sorts of people there like, what the heck? And all of them would just like, I'm off to the flame. But at the same time, I think some of his ideas would be highly offensive to people on the right and to people on the left. And um, and you see that in Jesus. Jesus obviously isn't dealing with a, a polarized right or left culture, but you have the Pharisees who are kind of the closest thing to like our fundamentalist kind of hyper conservative religious people in America who just are really ticked at him all like literally are working to kill him. And then on the other side, you have the Sadducees and the Roman Empire and the Herodians who were, you know, not the liberal, like it's the, that distinction breaks down, but the closest thing to the liberals of the day, and they hate him too. And in the end, the one thing that they could agree on was we need to kill Jesus of Nazareth. So I think the, the danger to like, you know, what I call option C theology, like fighting for like a third way past the kind of liberal conservative divide around the Bible. And, and of course, these are broad sweeping terms. The danger is you make both sides mad if you're kind of doing your job right. So I think that's my fear is I don't, I don't want to stir up controversy for controversy's sake and just have everybody on both sides mad at me. But I do really think that I really believe we have to find a third way forward for American culture that right now is so polarized. Yeah. And by third way, I don't even mean like a middle ground. I mean a third way, an option C. Yeah. 
You, you talk about prayer in the book, and it's actually been, I told my wife just yesterday, it's kind of shaking me up, like it's messing with me a little bit, the the section you write on prayer. And, and I think that we've got a lot of dads listening and a lot of young dads, and, and we're told a lot that like one of the ways that we need to lead our families or be a spiritual leader in our home is to pray with and for our wife and for our kids. Um, but I think there are a lot of guys who aren't praying mainly because they're just, they're not totally convinced that their prayers make a difference. And it's that kind right. of like God's gonna do what God's gonna do attitude. I don't really yes. change it. And so then it's hard to like pray with your kids because you even our own prayer lives are like, does this even make a difference? Doesn't make any um, sense. Yeah, it's illogical. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So I mean, so you talk about it in the book, but what what do you think? I mean, do you think our prayers actually change things? Yeah. I mean, one hundred and ten percent. And this is a genuine, you know, debate and controversy in the church. And how does human free will interact with you know God and His sovereignty and all? I get that. But I am definitely of the firm opinion that um, our prayers actually make a difference in what do does or does not happen. Um, that to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus' central prayer, is to make a number of assumptions. One is that heaven is the place where God's will is done all the time. Um, or in the cliche of kind of the American church, God is in control. Earth is the place where there are other wills at play. God's will is done some of the time. There are multiple other wills at play. There's my will. I can do all sorts of things. I think I have genuine, legitimate freedom to either obey God or not obey God, to do what God wants me to do or not do what God wants me to do. Now, I think God can override my freedom, but I think he rarely does it because it's so far outside of his nature. So I have freedom. I have a will. Um, I have a range of influence over my body, my mind, my mouth, my family, my job, people that I lead. Um, the other 7 billion people on the planet, they all have a will too and a range of influence that is either in line with or quite contradictory to mine or to Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Satan and his, you know, minions, so to speak, have wills, have a range of influence. God has a will and a range. Even nature, in a sense, has a inanimate will in that there are laws of nature at work and weather patterns for a tsunami and this, that, the other. So I think it's a gross oversimplification when people just say, well, God's in control and interpret every event as if it was this, you know, hand of God kind of thing. I don't think that's where we live. We live in a world where Jesus just assumes there are all sorts of wills at play. God's will is one among many. Now, that doesn't mean it's on an equal playing field. God is God. There's no other equal or parallel to God. But again, I think God God, in my humble opinion, I'm sorry, my wife just told me to stop saying in your humble opinion. She's like, honey, when you say that, you're not really being humble. You're, you're saying this is what I think is right, and you're trying to win people over. So here's what I think is right. <laughs> Let's be honest. I think that God has chosen to so limit his freedom of his own free will and volition in order to be in relationship with humanity and to create a milieu. I think that God's highest value is love. And in the universe that God has chosen to actualize, for love to actually be a thing, it demands freedom, demands free will, demands a choice between obedience and disobedience, good and evil, love or rebellion against that love. And so I think of his own free will, he has chosen to give human beings and spiritual beings and the earth itself incredible freedom. And I think that freedom is the primary cause of evil in the world. All that to say, when we pray, we're interacting with God's will and with our will and with billions of other human beings' will and with Satan's will and demonic cords will and even with nature itself. And 
So when we pray, we're asking God to step into this mishmash of wills and to influence with his will, to wield his power, his authority in love and nonviolent kindness into the world or the situation that we're in. And I think God is a father and we're his children and he's there and he listens. So all that to say, I think that when we pray, stuff happens. And when we don't pray, stuff doesn't happen. And um, I think that we actually have responsibility to pray, whether it's for our children or for our life or the situation that we're in. And I think if you don't believe that, uh, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe God is in control of every single thing that happens and prayer has no bearing at all on what does or does not you know, become the outcome. I don't think that's right, but maybe it is. But if that's so, it's really hard to work up any kind of a motivation to pray because it just feels like going through the motions and it feels like reading a shopping list to God that he already has and asking him to do stuff that he's already going to do. It's like nonsensical for a, like a, a rational thinking person. It's really hard to even make sense of why, why, you know what I mean? Or for a lot of people who think that through, prayer just becomes... I want to just express my heart to God and be with God, which is awesome. I think it is that. But there's no, like there's certain, if you read certain, in a certain theological tradition, I won't name names. I just read a famous best-selling preacher that I love, and I absolutely love his teaching, but he read his whole book on prayer, and there's almost nothing on like what's called intercession or asking God for stuff, because in his theological framework, God's going to kind of do what God's going to do. So prayer is more about us getting the right heart than it is about getting God to do something. And I think it's a both and. I don't think it's just that. What are, what are your prayers for your kids? Oh, man. So I, I do these little prayer cards. There's this little book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Have you ever read that? I have, yeah. Yeah, it's a great, oh, I just love it. I was really inspired. So he, you know, he talks about prayer cards. So I started doing that. So I, uh, I had them this morning. I have these little prayer cards. We passed them out to our church. And I pray the Shema over them every day if I can, that they would grow up to, or not even, that even now they'd love the Lord, the God, all their hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Um, I pray that my boys would be best friends. I pray um, for their sexuality in particular and holiness in that area. It just, I, I can't, it's so over the top hard to honor um, women and their body and their sexuality and our own body and our own sexuality in the digital age and in the secular world. So I, I pray a lot for that. Um, I pray different things for, you know, one of them's a musician. I just pray God's blessing on that. Another is a thinker and an intellectual. I pray specifically for faith. He has struggles with doubt, but loves Jesus. I pray for his faith. Um, I pray for myself that I, I usually pray that I would love, patience, wisdom, and energy. Those are like mm. the four things I pray for myself as a father and that God would help me to create an environment where, um, where following Jesus is something they want to do. Mm. Those are great prayers, man. Uh, in your book, Loveology, you, you say that you, you talk about how your own marriage kind of went through a little bit of a crisis and you had to think about what, not just what marriage is, but what it's for. Uh, I'm curious what you learned in that. What is marriage for? Yeah, yeah. My wife and I, I mean, just the backstory to that, for anybody who hasn't read it, um, married really young. I was 21 and she was 19 and quickly realized that we, uh, we, were, we were pretty ambitious uh, in our relationship and we're very different people from very different family of origins, kind of very different cultural backgrounds. And uh, very quickly into our marriage, like realized we have a problem. <laughs> this is not going very well. 
And this was a lot of years of wrestling and what the heck and how do we move forward. And um, yeah, one of the kind of turning points for me was just a realization of, I think there's a lot of talk about what marriage is, especially if you come from like a conservative background. Um, and I stand with Jesus and the ancient vision of marriage is between a man and a woman in covenant for life. I think that's what Jesus taught. I think that's what the New Testament teaches. Um, but I think there's very little said about what marriage is for. And I think that's even more compelling and interesting. So yeah, I do a little biblical theology of marriage out of Genesis. And I say that marriage is four things. Is for four things. The first is um, for companionship or friendship. So we read that it's not good for the man to be alone. In Genesis chapter two, I will make him a helper suitable to him or a partner or an equal, you know? So it's like friendship and companionship. And there's all the, you know, great psychological stuff on a companionate marriage versus a, a romance marriage. Have you ever seen that graph where like on one side you have time? Have you ever seen this? On one, or on one side you have passion, like on the vertical line you have passion. On the horizontal line you have time. And if you chart, you know, say, six years, 60 years or whatever a marriage is. And then, you know, say in one, imagine one color, you know, blue or whatever, a passionate marriage, it like jets almost straight up for the first, you know, year or two. And then it has about two years and then it plummets down <laughs> and then it just hovers right over the very bottom for the next, you know, 58 years. <laughs> and then um, what they call the companionate marriage, which is arranged marriage, it's my wife and I's marriage or whatever, um, it starts pretty low or maybe it's a little bump, but, and it's just this slow, gradual art and it never hits the like high, high, but it's this slow build that literally never goes down. It just keeps mm. building year after year, decade after decade. And so I think that in that companionate kind of friendship, um, that's a huge aspect of what marriage is for. It's not the only thing. Second thing I say marriage is for is um, for, you know, I call it gardening. And what I mean by that is like, I don't know if you want to call it mission or vocation or doing something in the world. You know, God called Adam to be a gardener, to garden in the Garden of Eden, to rule over the earth. To, we call that work or vocation or career, to take the raw materials of the world and to make it into an environment for human beings to thrive and flourish in relationship to God and each other. That's that's like the Genesis definition of work or vocation or career in our language, to partner with the God, to take the raw materials of the earth, to make a flourishing world. And, uh, and Adam couldn't do that alone. Like one person can't rule over the world. <laughs> that's going to take a whole lot of people, not just Adam and Eve, but their children and their children's children and so on and so forth. So I think mission or gardening or purpose or vocation or whatever you want to call it is a key like re second reason for marriage you you partner with somebody it's the idea with the helper suitable or zare in hebrew it's like a partner you partner with somebody to go do the work in the world that god has called the two of you to do third is um sexuality uh, you know, obviously Adam was created as a sexual being. He's created as one half of an equation sexually. And God created marriage as the context for us to enjoy and express our sexuality. And God just has such a high view of sex. Um, Song of Songs, like just like there's a whole book of like crazy erotic Hebrew love poetry that's just God's celebration in the Bible of sex between a husband and a wife. And then, um, of course, this is millennia before contraceptives. So the fourth reason is family. Um, be fruitful, increase in number, meaning have sex and make a lot more babies. And, um, and family is just a key aspect 
of marriage. Like sexuality leads to um, conception for most people and leads to children and leads to family. And out of that, you lead to community and community building. So yeah, those are kind of my four things of friendship and mission and sexuality and family. Those are the four reasons for marriage. Interesting, what's not on that list of biblical theology of reasons for marriage from Genesis 1 through 3 is happiness, uh, Mm -hmm. which is the reason that most of us get married. Most of us don't get married for any of those reasons, or maybe one or two, maybe sex and friendship, but not the other ones. Most of us get married because we want to be happy, and we think this person will make us happier. And that's not all wrong, but even if it's not idealistic, which most of us realize quickly, like, okay, that's just a little bit, this person will make my life better and they'll make my life worse. They'll make some of my life heaven on earth and others of it the other place on earth, you know? (laughs) Um, There's there's pros and cons. I don't care who your spouse is, no matter how amazing they are. Like, marriage is amazing, but it's not heaven on earth. It's um, two, you know, two broken, messed up, sinful people don't make, like, bliss. It makes, you know, twice as much brokenness and mess and sin and it exposes all of your mess and it gets all of your stuff in your face. And it's like all these, you know, I see this all the time with single people in our church. Our church has so many young single people, like these young single men. You're just great guys. I mean, they're not like bad, great guys, you know, fall in love and start to date and they ask, will you marry me? And then they get married and they come to me about six months later and they just think, oh my gosh, I thought I was like a great guy and follower of Jesus. I thought I was like one of the most eligible bachelors in the church or whatever. I am such a jerk. I lose my temper. I had no idea the toilet paper is supposed to go like facing inside and down and not out. And like there's a way and like I'm doing all these things I get in trouble for. And I I I had so much work and I just want to go watch football or, you know, it's not that when when guys get married, they become worse human beings. It's that before we're married, you don't have anyone there to like expose just what a jerk you are a lot of the time. And marriage, and this is one of the best things about marriage, or any close friendship, it exposes where you're actually at. And, and then in a healthy marriage, there's somebody there to love you, forgive you, and say, I want to partner with Jesus because I don't only see who you are, I see who you're becoming. I don't see just the present, but I see the end result. And I want to partner with Jesus to see you become that person. That's a very different view of marriage and relationship in general um, than the kind of, I want to marry you so I can have sex and you can make my life great and you can make me happy and we can live, you know, happily ever after in the sunset. Um, And I just think that view of marriage is just a setup for disillusionment at best and divorce at worst. I think it is one of the main causes of the just skyrocketing divorce rate in our culture and the breakdown of the family. Because I think we go in with all sorts of false expectations. Yeah, man. Good stuff. I was just going to let you keep going. Sorry, I, just, like... I just realized I've been talking, so I'm a little tired today. I just realized I've been talking for like, it's like a really socially awkward conversation. I'm just talking <laughs> at you. No, dude. It's, it, it's Well, it's not to me. We've got a lot of people listening. They love it. <laughs> I was homeschooled. I am quite socially awkward. You know, <laughs> I get up and teach every week and I'll, I'll say that sometimes like, you know, I'm really socially awkward. And people are like, no, not you. You stand up and talk in front of people. I'm like, yeah, it's a one sided conversation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Dude, well, thank you, man. Thank you for hanging out. I've got I had I read your books and I've got 50 more questions that I want to ask. Um, but for the sake of time, thank you for at least answering a few of them for us. Can tell, tell the guys where they can pick up your book or at least, uh, listen to more with what you've got going on. Oh yeah. I mean, I got, I think four books out now working on number five. They're all on Amazon or kind of wherever books are sold. I do have a website, johnmarkcomer.com, C-O-M-E-R. And there's a 
link there not only to the books, but also to the podcast at Bridgetown Church if you want to ever listen to any of the teachings week in and week out. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again. I know your dad tired, husband tired, pastor tired, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for taking uh, the time to hang out, man. Appreciate thanks, Jared. It. It's an honor to be with you guys. Have a great day. You too, man. Thanks.